Hey, welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide, and I'm back from Texas. I actually kind of waited to do this podcast. Uh, I was getting so much really great feedback and traction on George Gardner and Jacob Bynum interviews. I wanted them to percolate in the ether a little bit more, and so I, I delayed myself doing this next podcast. But I wanted to do an after-action report from the Rifles Only Brawl uh, as I said, I went down there, kind of no expectations. I, it was mainly to clear my head, but I got a lot of really good info to pass along, some really good details, some do's and don'ts, a lot of don'ts, because it was this was literally my worst match I've ever shot in the history of me shooting a match. But at the same time, I don't want it to come off excusey because it was, you know, 99% of my doing, and I'm fully aware of that. And, and I hate that it's like, do what I say, don't want to do what I do. But at the same time, you know, I, I blitz through things and, and, and I'll, I'll talk to you about timings and mental prep because there really is just a huge mental component to, you know, what we do and how that figures in. And, you know, when when you try to how to recover from a bad stage or in the different things, it was amazing. Just I, I probably should have done this driving home, and I thought about doing the podcast driving home and, and everything. I had so much time. But at the same time, I, you know, I wanted it to be a little cleaner and all that. And with the ride home, you get so many phone calls. In fact, I just got another phone call that interrupted this podcast again. Um, it, it, it just annoys me that the phone's ring and all that. So what I was finding in, in part of the lost episodes is with that uh, the app that I'm using, the, the, the system that I'm using, for those kind of remote interviews that everybody likes and thinks sounds really well. If I don't turn my phone off, it kills them. You know what I mean? I have to like put it in airplane mode. And that's why I ended up with that lost Jacob episode. But at the same time, I got 13 minutes of the conversation between Jacob and I of the part of the lost episode. I'm going to tack it on at the end of this because I want you guys to hear it because it's just different enough and that's just that 13 minutes. It's going to end abruptly. It's not going to be great. But if you stick around, think of it as like a bonus footage. Okay? It's kind of an outtake bonus footage. And Jacob goes into a little bit more detail. He's a little bit more talkative in that first version that we ended up losing. We're always better on one take. You know what I mean? Because we're a free flow. We're, you know, we're stream of consciousness kind of podcast. And it's not scripted or anything like that. So, you know, even though we're having a discussion on the same subject, it could be wildly different. And when I lose something, I never can do it the same way twice, you know, because I am that stream of consciousness. I am going that way. But the, the, the feedback, the comments, everything that we're hearing about the Jacob and George interviews have just been so great. But, I, you know, I, I wanted to let that that sit in there for a few days and not really do anything this week. So I kind of let you sit. Um, but anyway, so going down to rifles only, uh, as I said, this this was like my, hey, I need to get out of a headspace, you know, between December till just even the 10 days or so before the match. It's just been a pain in the ass and I just haven't been in a good place. So I, I wanted to get down there and make sure that, you know, I, I, I had a little bit of fun, a little free thinking, a little air to it. So cruise down on Wednesday night, um, you know, decent little trip. It's about 14 hours and, and, and made it down. I got there about 10 o'clock that night to the hotel, uh, stayed at the Holiday Inn in Kingsville. And uneventful, you know, no big deal. 
The weather was super cold here. I left When I left the house, it was like minus 10, or not minus 10. It was 10 degrees here in town. When I got out on 70, it was minus 5 degrees for about two hours of my ride all the way. I don't think it got over 30 degrees until about noon, you know, so about five, six hours of traveling until I, you know, peaked above 30. But the um, I want to talk about the rifle prep and what I did. I, I, I really, you know, the question was, well, what rifle do I bring? Nothing was really there, and I wanted to get into, like, an ammo thing. As many of you know, uh, Prime's in kind of a holding pattern right now. There's a, there's kind of a reorganization for 2019 happening, and there's some back and forth going with RUAG. So everything's listed as back-ordered, and there's no prime ammo. And that's being remedied. It's going to get fixed, and, and they're really kind of working hard to, to sort that out as well as widen out that base so it won't happen again. With that in mind, I had the barreled action that Mile High put together for me, the 6.5 Creedmoor on the Bighorn TL3. Cool. So I go to Mile High, and I need two things. I'm going to get two cases of ammo, um, you know, and I'm going to use the 147 grain Hornaday. I want. I never shot the 147s. I wanted to see how they worked in this rifle, uh, you know, the barreled action. I wanted to see how the heavier 6.5 bullet would work down at Rifles Only because Rifles Only is known for wind, okay? Very similar to the range up here. It's probably a little bit less, but not much. And we did had some really, really tricky wins going on. And a lot of guys were taking that for granted. And we're going to get into that, you know, a little further down the down the um, the discussion. But uh, so I get two cases of 147s and then I'm going to use that zero compromise. Well, I had it in my Heinzolt sperm mount, 36 millimeter, right? So it's very specific. And the one I'm using and the one I had that when I did the initial zero compromise video prior to SHOT Show, that had 55 minutes of camp built in. Okay, the Heinzolt's a, a, a big, heavy elevation scope. You can manage 55 minutes. It's almost on the edge of an ELR-type scope. So with that in mind, I take it out. I put it into a zero MOA spur on a 20-minute, re-zero up that. So... Same time, I got two chassis here that I got to work with. I got MDT, the AACC, and then I have the JP that came in. Well, because rifles only is positional. I really wanted to shoot the Valkyrie, okay? All out on the table. I'm going to be blatantly honest with not only myself, but with you guys, my mindset. You're going to get into Frank's head, man. You're going to be all, all over in that head. You know what? I, it's going to be yeah, scary, right? It's going to be silly. So... Here, here's what's going on. I, um, I want the shorter length to pull. Well, first off, going back to the Valkyrie. I want to take the Valkyrie. Okay, Jacob's ranges are usually pretty short, and, and he did that again. But he, he, you know, he had a lot smaller target, which I'll get into in a little bit. But his ranges are generally pretty short, but they're usually positional heavy. They're movement and positional heavy, okay? Well, He's a safety guy, which you heard in the podcast, okay? Every stage, when you're moving, it's got to be bolt back, mag out. With an AR, you're ejecting rounds all the time. You know what I mean? And I don't, I'm not a big fan of the, the PRI 6.8 mag. I think it's the best mag for the Valkyrie out there. It works really well. But when you're in and out and in and out and you're moving, there's movement in that mag. And it doesn't take much to foul the round have it slide forward just a little bit. Now your tips fall, then you got problems. 
and racking that bolt every time on an AR is is going to be a nightmare. So I said, I got to go bolt action. I wish I had a Valkyrie bolt action, but I got to go bolt action. So I'm putting that big horn barreled action into the JP chassis. Why the JP versus the MDT? Length of pull. Okay, that's where my head's at. I'm going length of pull. The MDT is a 14-inch length of pull. The JP is a 12.8. Okay, I want that shorter length of pull for all the positional stuff. I, I, I put everything in. I get that window like I talked about in between the weather. Okay, we've had, like even today, it's snowing out today. It's cold. It's been that the day before, the Tuesday I left or before I left for uh, Texas, it was snowing. I went through the snow. It was super cold. Like I said, it was like minus five on the way down and the whole thing here. And it was icy and cold and nasty. You know, going down to South Texas was actually welcome because it was 60 to 80 degrees, depending which day. But Wednesday, I'm traveling down. So just before, it was that Thursday before that I ended up going to the range. Mounted the barrel to action. I barely, so I pick up two cases of um, 147s, and then I redo the, the zero compromise in the spur. So the spur's in a, in a, in a zero MOA on a 20-mount rail or 20-MOA rail, and I re-zero that. A couple rounds, no problem. I got a good zero, money. So then I got to run the numbers over to chronograph because I've never shot the 147s before. Okay, cool. I do like three to five rounds over a chronograph. I get 27.15 feet per second. Okay, 27.15, that works. Go out, I shoot maybe two, three rounds at 800. I shoot maybe two, three rounds at 11.25. I write that information down, put it in the car, and I drive home. I'm done. That was it. So I zeroed it, five rounds over the chronograph, three rounds at eight, three rounds at 11. I'm out of there. I'm home. Run the numbers in the computer, put it in trace out, and it's it's matches up to the eight in the eleven twenty five. I say I'm good. I don't have to play with it too much. That's it. I just got to make sure with the DA, it, you know, because I'm still at like four thousand DA in Texas. Isn't going to be that hot or you know that high. Um, so I, I, there's going to be that little worry, but no big deal. In a, in a way, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, well, if I get to rifles only and I got that day, maybe I can slip a few rounds in. You know, on Thursday, because I haven't shot rifles only since 2011. Haven't been down there to shoot anything, and, and I don't think I fired one round at it. And it's changed a lot, okay? It's it's much different than it used to be. But I get down there Thursday, and, and they're still working. They're doing their thing. So I just hang out, you know, socialize. Had a couple words with some people and some things, and, and it was, for the most part, it's it's like going home. You know what I mean? It's going back to where, where you're from, you see all these guys from South Texas. Everybody's so great. I mean, just had a blast. Brian's there, Chuck's there, you know, Troy's helping out and, and, and all those things, and you're seeing, you know, Regina Milkovich shows up. You got Phil Vallejo's down there, all these guys, and it's just that typical Lindy's R. Owen, John Lem's R. Owen. You know, I see uh, the Docs, uh, Sean, I see Carl. Oh, oh hey, Car hey, Carl. Hey, Carl. Hey, Carl. Hey, Carl, you watch any of the videos? Hey, Carl. Um, so those guys are all there. So it's, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, reestablishing these year-long friendships that were prior to 2011. You know, I saw some of them when we had our match there over about two years ago now, a year and a half ago. 
but I didn't shoot it. I RO'd it. And then Gardner's coming. He's going to RO. And, and again, you guys saw that as interviews, and, I, and I'm doing that kind of stuff. So no shooting Thursday. Oh, cool. Match starts Friday morning. Uh, you, you know, I, I, we're out. I get some decent sleep. Everything's cool. You know, no big deal with, with that. Had some of the Wild Horse Distillery liquor. Good stuff, man. The Cowboy Coffee is awesome. It's like a coffee-flavored rum. So good. I mean, it, it was it was really, really a kick-ass thing. And and, and then there was the whiskey rum, the one they wore, the, uh, won the uh, award for. And, and, you know, had a little bit of that and, and all that. But I get up. Come in early on thir- on Friday morning, get ready for the match. I, now, I have, like, two boxes missing out of the one case of ammo. And I got, oh, well, I got the second case. I'm all good. I go over to grab and sort my ammo out, get everything ready for the morning. I only got one case of 6.5. I brought the, the, when I grabbed it, I grabbed six Creedmoor at the house and threw it in the back of the car. So I had two cases of six Creedmoor. And one case is 6'5". I was like, oh, shit, I'm missing a box of the ammo. Ah, what am I going to do? And I'm like, god oh, damn. So there's a couple short stages. And I'm like, eh, I'll, do, I'll use Prime because I have Prime in the car. 130 versus the 147. So what I do, first thing in the morning, safety brief. There's fog. There's weather. It's the violent South Texas dew storms, okay? So dew everywhere. The whole thing, and this kind of plays in. Like I said, I'm going to be hypercritical on me. Don't take it as an excuse. Like I said, it's just me analyzing in myself in public. It's too easy to never say, I messed this up. I didn't do this. I did that. You know, oh, it was, it was the stage's fault. It was this. No, it was all my fault. And, and I want you guys to understand so you don't make the same mistakes I made. Again, I wasn't going down there looking to light the place on fire, although in the back of my head, I'm like, well, I've shot rifles only enough. How bad could it be? <laughs> could be bad. Like I said, I, I again, I'm going to be saying, like I said, because I've done this twice in a way. I, I had a call come in and messed my, my groove up. So, um, you know, I'm thinking how bad could it be? Not thinking, well, this is going to be competition's going to be hard and heavy because there's a lot of really good shooters there. Uh, you know, one of the guys called me on the ride home. One of the reasons I didn't do this podcast on the ride home is I was getting a lot of calls, talking to people. One of the guys called me and asking a question about a stage because there was this, the berms have a misconception. In spotting and ROs and berms, I'm going to talk about that a little bit because people were like, more than one person came up to me going, what the heck, my dope was high. But they're really their dope was, and it looks high because the way the berm pushes the dirt. So, um, you know, from my standpoint, my trace aisle was 100% on. My dope was good. I have no excuses in terms of dope or anything like that. It was all just me kind of being, being a dumbass and messing things up. But I did have people talk to me, and one guy was saying there was the, the table stage, and you had to go underneath. There's this table with, like, four braces across it. And you had to shoot off each brace and move out of the table, under the table, out of the table, under the table, out of the table, under the table, and push your rifle across. I did actually really well on that stage. I had, it was so strange, but it's enough to be, you know, really bad. I'd have a good stage, you know, about almost cleaning it. Then I'd have a bad stage. Then I'd have a good stage. Then I'd have a bad stage, you know. Went like that every single time. in. The table, I actually got seven out of eight, you know. So the first round, I made sure I was good because there was wind. 
everybody said, like all the guys who, who were there and I talked to and we talked afterwards, this was a deceptively hard match. Because if you looked at it on paper, it looked simple. It should have been one of the easiest meatball matches out there. But it was deceptively hard for a lot of people because the targets were small. In the wind, even in the, the ranges were short. Okay, number one, that's why it seemed deceptive. The ranges were short. But the targets were small, and the wind was just tricky enough to move you off those smaller plates. Okay? So you had to really kind of pay attention to the wind, even though it's like, eh, it's 320 yards. I don't have to worry about the wind. But you do, and it goes right back to, uh, if you listen to the early, early podcast with us shooting Pawnee and laughing that I can't hit that damn 300-yard target at Pawnee, that little, like, four or six-inch or whatever the heck it is. Well, this was the same thing. It's a target like that small, but it's close, so you think, wow, it's a meatball. Boom, what is a big deal? And you miss it, and it's like, holy shit. But the other thing was the round counts were so high. Okay, the average stage was 15 rounds. So with such a high round count, you know, messing things up, that one table moved that guy. He had a bad stage on the table, moved him 10 slots, 10 spaces in his finishing order. So one stage could move a guy 10 slots to the rear just because of how tight the competition was, how good the shooters were, and, and, and you know, it's, it, that's just the way the game works. When you're in such a strong points race, two or three points jumps drops you, you know, three or four slots. And here we saw that this dropped a guy one stage, dropped a, a, a shooter who did well, top 20 guy, but it dropped him 10 places just messing that one stage up. And he had called me asking about a dope question. But um, so... That's my first thing is I messed my ammo up, right? So I, I only got one case in the ammo and I got to switch ammo. It's like, ah, oh, damn. Well, the other thing on my mind is I went with the really light Trigger Tech Diamond Trigger and I lowered it to about a pound. Just it's right in that one pound zone. And, and that goes against my natural inclination. I usually don't go below two pounds on a trigger, okay? I just don't do it. But with the positional and the thing and the way the gaming, I wanted to kind of see. It weighed on my brain. It, it was a mental drag because, again, think about Jacob and safety. One mess up in safety, you're out. The match is done for you. I didn't want to be that guy who got DQ'd for, you know, touching one off because my trigger was too light. But at the same time, I wanted to shoot a light trigger. Now understand, prior to that, that day, I, I hadn't shot rifles only since 2011. Okay, I hadn't been down there. They changed that range quite a bit. I had that bad head trip going on over the over the holidays and, in you know, prior to shot and after shot. Went back to Connecticut right after shot. Hadn't done anything, in, in, and I needed to knock the rust off. I needed to kind of reseed. But more important, I needed to get my head straight. I really appreciated everybody who came up to me and said, hey, love the podcast. Hey, love the videos. Hey, love the website. Or the old friends that reconnected, the guys who, hey, missed seeing you down here. Really like the fact that you're down here. I had more people, you know, appreciate the fact that I drove down and was there to shoot the match than, you know, had I not been there. And 
Um, you know, I'm going to touch on to the NRL side of it. Uh, I'll do that at the end. I, I really think the NRL did a great job. Um, you know, as far as the series go, I, I got to say right now, they're kind of a little bit above the, the others in what they did. So, and again, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on me cause you know, that's how it goes. But anyway, it, it's, it, it, the, the, that, that trigger was in my head. Okay. So that it was so light and that the safety and, and again, every stage, when you move bolt back mag out. Okay. So there, there's that bolt back mag out. And, and even when I talked to Jacob, it's like I slid six inches on a barricade in the window of it. You know, the rifle didn't even come out. It just slid across and mag out. Well, I put this JP together. I go do the whole thing. My first thing in the morning, I went, I, I, I sat with some guys. I should have been with Serge and George, um, George Ortiz. And then Phil was there with Madrina. I, you don't squad up at rifles only. Okay, it's go wherever you want. I cruised around by myself and I met a ton of great people I would have never met. There was a really lot of new shooters at this event. And by me, just I shoot my thing. I left. I shoot my thing. I left. I was done by about 145 in the afternoon and I was in the the barn there, the, the building with Jacob and sitting down and visiting with him and you know, it was probably an hour, hour and a half until the majority of people finished. I finished, oh, I'm going to say an hour and a half earlier than most, okay? Because I just, I, I shot it too fast. I paid no attention, and it was the wrong thing to do. So, w w number one, the first stage I got up to in the morning was too far, and the fog was too heavy. I couldn't see. I should have not shot that. I should have shot the two shorter targets while the fog was there in the morning. Again, violent dew storms, South Texas, the fog was in. We didn't start shooting until after 9, which even makes it worse. You know what I mean? That I was done at 145, that we didn't start till like 9, 930. Uh, try to get that fog to burn off. Well, I couldn't see the target. And, and rather than just walking away, I threw rounds at it and I got three hits and don't even know how the hell I did that because I, I couldn't see it. And part of my problem, and I realize this, my eyes are getting bad. I'm a little late on my new prescription and clear, and I didn't wear my glasses that morning because number one, my shooting glasses were sunglasses and it was foggy and overcast. Two, it was the dew storm and you were getting all that moisture and that dew on everything and you couldn't see because um, it was, it was you know, just getting on all the optics and the stuff. So I said, well, I'm not going to wear my glasses because I'll just be cleaning them off and they're going to get messed up. I had to wear my glasses. I really do. I'm getting old. Things are broke. My shoulder, my shoulder was screaming. I didn't KT tape up. It was a mistake. Um, you know, I didn't look after my health. I didn't look after myself the way I should have. And, and that's an important thing. You know, we talk about nutrition. We talk about hydrating. We talk about, you know, feeding your body and having all these things in top shape for these competitions because while it doesn't seem like it's active, it's very active, okay? And so you have to feed your body and your mind, and your mind is a big, big part of it. So rather than just say, I can't see this first target of the day, I, I only got the three hits when I should, it should have been an easier shot and I should have got closer to 12, okay? So I was way below the curve just to even start. Well, then, you know, I cruised from place to place and didn't hang out. Well, I noticed, and, and this is important, man, 
when you get up to the stage, like I watched, because Vibbert was there, you know what I mean? And Vibbert does really well. He's one of the top guys. And just to kind of see when he was in front of me, what he was up to, he watches everything. Okay, he's looking for that weakness in your stage design. He's looking for in what all the mistakes everybody else makes. It's smart. I'm not being negative at all. Don't put it off that way. The guy's super smart when it comes to competitions. But I'm sitting back and I'm watching, you know, he's in he's in kind of the line with me. Um, you know, he's watching it. He's watching it. He's watching it. He's not socializing until after he's done. Okay, he's really paying attention to how am I going to manipulate this? Where me, I just ran up, got in line. If I, you know, I might have been talking about the site or something else, might have been talking about the chassis or the scope, might have been talking about whatever, but I didn't pay any attention to the stage. I really didn't. And it had an impact on how well I did or how well I understand what I should be doing. Okay, you really, really, really. Don't just look at the book. Look at how it's being executed. And the nice thing is everybody executes these just slightly different. You know what I mean? And and so that's kind of a cool little thing to say, well, you know, am I going to do this stage sitting or am I going to do this stage kneeling? Am I going to do this stage with a sling on or am I going to do this stage with the sling off? You know, all these little things play into it. The nice thing, as I said, rifles only. Carry any bags you want, but you only can use one bag. They really stipulate sling only, one bag. All these rules, even though you have all that stuff, okay, the one bag could be a puff pillow. The one bag could be a game changer. The one bag could be a rear bag. But you only can use one bag at a time. And and I have to say, in a match like that, the, the uh, not the Saracen, but the Comanche I used, the Comanche really, really worked out well as not only just as a, a you know, uh, for on the props on the barricades and supporting the rifle, but sometimes you were like up on a barricade and a prop and then down on the prone after. Well, I used it as a rear bag after, and that helped, you know, because uh, th- there's definitely some stuff. But the the cool thing is is you could be in line, and they'll call on the radio and say, hey, there's no line over at the Connex box. Well, get out of line and go to the Connex box. And I did that in one stage. And this was the beginning of, like, what I thought was funny and, like, a joke at first. But then I thought it was operator error. And it turned out to I found a problem with a prototype. I mean, one of the things, and, in, in, again, I'll go back to Vibbert. You know, I, I, I was kind of telling him at the end how some things messed up with me. He's like, dude, I won't bring anything new unless I've played with it for three months. Because he says people send him new bags, new product, new this for matches all the time, and then they're all upset because he won't use it for three months at a match because he doesn't want to commit to t- being a beta tester where in this match, I was a beta tester. Like I said, I had that prototype JP, all that stuff. I had the zero compromise. I you know, had ammo I never shot before. All, all these little things kind of, and then the light trigger that I, I you know, not 100% sure of and kind of second-guessing in my head. And, and the trigger did get me some points on some of the positions, but at the same time, it was in my head all the time. You know what I mean? I, I, I needed more time to make sure I understood a trigger that light in that setting, and it, it was completely out of character for me to go with a trigger like that. You got to put your reps in. 
Okay, you need those numbers behind you to make sure your brain is completely comfortable with what you're using. So I go to the barrel stage and, and, and this is kind of this is a double funny and I'm going to kind of throw a little bit of politics and some inside ball at you guys. So they got three whiskey barrels on, on a on a carriage. And if you needed it, they had a step stool for you. But then they had a barrel on the ground because you got George and Trevor in wheelchairs. You got Nate from Short Action Precision. And so I said to the guys at RO at the barrel, uh, so you got to put your name and they put paper up. It was like a 65-yard shot on paper. And the girl says to me, she says, um, hey, your paper's not going to go up on this, uh, you know, this cycle. It'll be about 30 minutes. So just hang on and wait. Right when she's telling me that, call comes on the radio there's an open stage. I say, hey, I'm going to go to that open stage and I'll come back. She says, perfect, no problem. I go running probably five, 600 yards across the uh, range, go to the stage, which was the Josh Ruby stage, Captain Kickass there. I had a lot of fun with Kickass kind of reconnecting. And it's his stage. And he's like, I'm going to DQ you, man. I'm going to DQ you. I'm like, no way, dude. So the stage is this, this left-hand prone Left hand barricade, slide over to right hand, and then right hand prone. Okay, so I, I go over and I, I do well on his stage. He, he dogged me a point, which is funny. I'm, gonna, I'm laughing about this. Like, you owe me a point, man. I want my point. You know, because I, I broke my last shot. My seventh hit out of eight was um, at the 90.3. And I'm like, that's in spec. That's in spec. He's like, no, I'm taking your point. You know, there's a whole little funny thing. I'm, I'm going to actually probably run out of time to tell you, but it was a whole funny thing about that point, and I still think it's funny. So then I, I get off the barricade, and I go zooming right back to the barrel stage, and now I'm ready to shoot the barrel stage, and I'm actually rotating right in to be like the first guy with the new um, targets up. So I said to the RO, and, and he knew me, you know, old rifles only guy, ROs all the time. I said, hey, man, I'm going to – um. I'm going to go and, and, and I'm going to step up on the step stool. I want to see where the top of the barrel is in regard to my chin. And he's like, yeah, man, do whatever you want. I'm like, all right, cool. And I look up and I'm just a little bit too short. I, could I do it? Yes. I said, I ain't doing it, dude. I'm going to go on the short barrel. I'm like, I'm always tippy-toeing these things and I really don't want to do it. He's like, dude, I'll put a center block up on the, on the, um, on the stool. So why bother? I just go, there's a barrel right there on the ground. They had one on the ground that simulated the same movement and everything, but it was on the ground and it was wedged in with a cinder block. But I, I could basically shoot it off my knees and not, you know, have to climb up and be on my tippy toes. So he's like, all right, no big deal. I get on it. I lock down. I shoot the first shot and I'm center punched. I'm like, cool, I got this. So I, now you got 15 shots with a lot of these stages in 90 seconds. So you really got to run the bolt. I mean, even George Gardner did the positional stage where I'm shooting and kneeling at a 100-yard target, and you got to do 15 shots from slung only, and it's got to look like an NRA thing. You're running the bolt, man. To stay on target that fast, it, you know, I got ended up getting like 11, 12 hits out of 15, but you're moving fast. So... I'm going, I'm racking the bolt, and I'm going to get my hits. And like four rounds in, my bipod falls off and falls off the front of the friggin' rifle and off the front of the barrel. I'm like, what the fuck? Did my bi and I start laughing. I'm like cracking up. I'm like, oh, my God, because like it's karma. You know what I mean? I went on the short barrel. I'm racked in, and I'm locked in tight. I'm not tippy-toeing it, and I'm doing well. Karma bites me and throws my bipod off in front of the barrel in front of the firing line. 
So now I lean back and I just rest the friggin' Arca rail there. The a real I'm gonna get I gotta fix this, man. It's a and this is this is gonna be part of the issue. It's a really right stuff dovetail. If you're doing this and you're building Arca shit, you're wrong. It's a really right stuff dovetail. The spec is different. So anyway, I go, I start laughing. I don't hit shit after that. So I end up getting like two or three hits, no more, because my bipod fell off. So I'm cracking up, and I'm like, ah, what, what do I care? And then, like I said, I zoom in from thing to thing. By 1 o'clock, I'm done, 145, you know what I mean? I'm done. I'm in the room talking with Jacob. We're, we're revisiting. We're talking about the match. We're talking the NRL stuff. And, and here I'll get into some of the NRL thing. They brought a trailer with repair stuff. I saw guys go in there and use it, okay? Hey, they announced. Here's a trailer. It's got all the tools and everything you need. If you break something, use it. There was even spare firing pins in there because I saw a guy that I talked to break a surgeon firing pin. In the middle of the match, shit breaks. You know what I mean? It always does. So, you know, there's that. So, huge amount of help. They... They put on a nice show. They make sure it's about the shooter. They make sure it's about the range. They don't make it about themselves. They did a really good job. I, and the NRL is definitely one of the top series right now. I, I think between the two, they're, they're a little bit above the other guys. And I'm friends with the other guys and all that. But at the same time, it they, they did it right. Talking with Jacob, they helped him right. They really support the match director throughout the entire process of getting this match off the ground. Whatever you need, they're there to help. Okay, they really support the shooter. They got stuff in there that they they were you know they're they're social media savvy. They're doing these things right. So, you know, we had dinners and food and trucks and you know you can go get the the meal they had a great uh little carne asada and everything and you know they set up a cigar bar after it's an event they make it an event and not like come to my match and then click off and disappear out in town everybody hangs around everybody's being social everybody's being positive and jacob and i were, were discussing you know out of a hundred and i don't know i'm gonna round it i don't know what the number was 120 shooters there might have been 10 wearing jerseys. You know what I mean? It was so mellow, so laid back with the no squads and going where you want. You, you, you can really mix in and meet people, see different takes. I mean, if you see somebody and you can kind of, you know, shadow them and see how to learn. You don't have to be in a squad, but you could say that guy, you know, that guy's going to teach me something. I'm going to shadow him. And you can. You know what I mean? There's a great opportunity for people to do this stuff and learn something in the way Rifles Only runs that event. And and like Jacob said, he's a training facility. He's not, you know, it's not a competition thing. It's about training. A lot of little kids, you know, the whole thing. He's got up and comings. He's got old guys, new guys, you know, all this stuff. And so... It was, it was a great atmosphere for me. I was really happy. Even though I shot terrible, I, I didn't care. I was just so happy about it, and I was learning things. You know, I got my mental notes. I got where, where am I falling down? What am I not doing right? And there was so much of it not prepping myself for that stage, right? You know, going in there and just throwing stuff and having the equipment. Well, the next morning, and I'm going to fast forward, because we had a great night that night before. Come Saturday morning now for the second day. 
My first stage is the helicopter stage. And usually, usually, you know, usually, it, it's one of those things where um, I do well the second day. And I haven't think I got that in my head. My, my mental attitude is I usually do better on the second day. Okay, cool. First one's the helicopter stage. You got to shoot out the door of the helicopter off the rope. Then you're going to transition to prone and then shoot the same target prone from inside the helicopter. Advantage Frank, because inside the helicopter, there's not a lot of room. I got plenty of room. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit down kneeling. I'm going to pull back on the rope. I'm going to lock in. I'm going to shoot that. Then I'm going to transition down, and I got prone. I brought my one bag with me, and I brought my troused long pillow because I want to support my firing hand. And then I can come down and just use my fist as a rear bag. I'm good. No problem. I get in on it. I pull in on the rope. I'm I'm nailing it. I'm rocking. I like I, I I'm hearing a hit, but I can't hear the guy say hit. So I'm kind of like I'm trying to listen. Am I actually hitting it, or is that somebody else? Because I really couldn't tell. It was only like a 300, 400 yard target, and it's so fast that I'm kind of cranking the bolt that I'm riding over the bolt noise and trying to hear the hit, but I can't hear the uh the RO who's scorekeeping because he's outside the bird and probably about five yards in front of it. So I'm a little confused, but I think I'm hitting it and I'm, but I'm, I'm there. I'm doing well. Shot eight, my bipod goes flying off again and out the front of the bird hits the skid and goes in front of the firing line. I'm like, what the fuck? My bipod. Oh, like first stage of the day. Totally. Now, I'm supposed to be transitioning to the gimme part. I just got, it's a 20-shot stage. I just got 7 out of 10 hits. And if I transition to the prone and get my 10, I'm going to be right in the freaking mix. I'm going to be, you know, doing well. That's a good score. Not with a bipod, I ain't, because I can't shoot. I got a pistol grip. I tried using my bag. There, I, I probably should have went kneeling and tried just shooting from a kneeling position or put my rifle on the knee, but I just wasn't thinking quick enough with the shock of seeing my bipod fly out. So now I'm like, nope, not operator error anymore because I thought my bipod fell off the first time. It was operator error that I either rubbed against the knob because I'm using the knob, okay, not the throw lever, which in a way the knob actually protected me a little bit. But the throw lever would have messed me up even worse if I used a really – because I got that – dovetail on the on the rifle but when i'm looking at it the day before there was movement okay it was like it wasn't tight and there was movement going on and you can see the scrapes and the marks in the material from my bipod shifting so you know i'm kind of analyzing this now and now i'm like in 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 you know diagnostic mode what the hell you know i'm, I'm now it's all starting to click it's not me something happened I go over, I put my tripod out, I put the friggin' chassis and everything on it, and I'm with a bunch of other guys, Surge, and these guys are with me. The friggin' rail's out of spec, and it's moving, and it's loosening up under these high stages, and my bipod has been moving the whole time. I'm like, oh, so now I'm like, and I don't give it, you know, now it's like, well, what do I do now? I can wrench on it. In Leatherman, it, but at the same time, different stages require your bipod to be in a different place. So I'm I'm just paying a little bit of attention. It's Phil Vallejo, you know, films himself at all these stages, 
and posts it. And he actually sent me a video. The last stage I shot, I shot with him and Regina were there. And they, uh, he filmed it and got me as well because he didn't go over to shut his camera off. So he got me. So the whole time I'm talking, to, it was another Josh Ruby stage. I'm talking to Josh the whole time and we're yelling at each other as I'm shooting it. So I'm shooting it and yelling at Josh and Josh is yelling back to me and I'm kind of laughing and goofing it and it was just fun. And I actually didn't do that awful in the stage, but at the same time, I'm talking the entire time. I'm swearing at him, calling him an MFR and all this other, it's pretty funny. But that's where my head was at once I realized what's going on. So I get back home and I'm talking to JP the whole time now. Because there was another thing. I'm The first day, and, and I'm going to back up here. I'm, I know I'm jumping all over. The first day, in the early stages with the mag out, I, I had a brand new MDT 12-round mag. And with a 15-round stage, the 12-round mag is money, right? So I'm like, 12-round mag, brand new, open it up out of the plastic, put it in the gun. I can't get it out. I'm like, I put it in, I start shooting, and it was tight, you know, and I'm like, it was even tight to get that first round in. You almost need like one round less kind of deal. Well, now I go to strip it, and I'm having a hard time stripping my mags. And I'm like, so I go back to my car. I get a Magpul mag, and that's working. And then I said, okay. Well, then somebody that afternoon on the first day tells me the MDT had an out-of-spec mag where it was too fat. Like the seam or something was spread a little bit. And I didn't realize this, that I actually have a bad mag in – so I ended up going and switching my mags out so they would drop. Chassis, man, you got to have those mags drop free. Stripping that mag and having to pull and yank and do all this stuff on it is really tough. And I couldn't figure out, like, why can't I get this mag out? Because it was binding and catching inside, not only on the sides of the chassis, but on the uh, release. And... Switching it to a, a real mag, an AI mag, or Magpul mag, it worked perfect. So I solved that, but after the first day. Because the first day I was just struggling with it, going, why that? You know, it was the only mag I had in my pouch. I'm like, I can go back to my car and get it. When I ended up doing that. And, and you know, and this funny thing, like the Gardner uh, uh, thing. Uh, did I mention that I went to 100 yards? I zeroed. Checked my zero, which was fine. But then I shot the uh, Prime. And I measured it so I knew my offset from the prime. It was three-quarters of an inch low right, um, like a quarter right, three-quarter low. So I knew when I switched to prime ammo, I could kind of offset it. But I just did it that morning at 100 yards. I don't think I finished that thought. Um, so that's one of those things that I did was actually put um, the, the uh, prime, and I was using prime in between on the shorter stages. But, uh, yeah, so I found out that that mag was out of spec. And it's like, again, prototype and beta testing in the middle of a match, bad, bad ideas. So, you know, the one stages that I, that pissed me off, that bit me, and it was 100% my fault. And I, and I should have done the train-up to knock the rust off. The train-ups matter. If there's an ability to do a train-up and you can squeeze it in, you really, really want to. Mover, man. I was so off on the mover. Number, my first mover shot, I... I Got it backwards. I did the win backwards and all that. And and it was like I held two instead of one and then one instead of two. And then it was like so two rounds went before I realized I was backwards. Then I fixed it, but I had already blown enough passes, kind of going like, what the hell did I just do? And then he changed moving chaos. Moving chaos is as soon as the mover comes out, you hit it. Then you go to – um. 
uh, uh, you know, like the three, four, or three, five, six, and then back to mover. Well, if you missed the mover this time, though, you, you were done. Like in the past, it didn't matter. You still can go to your statics. So it was mover, static, 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 mover. Well, he changed the rule on that where it was mover. If you missed it, you were done, and that was it. You only got like your two rounds, and it was done. So I had missed the mover thinking I'm just going to go and get the statics, and I'll figure out what my lead is after, and I couldn't even continue. So I didn't get to kind of correct myself on the fly because I was anticipating, and that was the first mover stage that I did, and I ended up blowing a lot of points. Then when I got to the other mover stage, I – figured out what I did wrong and where my leads were and started getting hits, but, you know, had wasted too much of the effort in, in basically, you know, retraining myself in the middle of the match. Was it good to learn and to realize and to get back? Cause I hadn't shot a mover. My mover disappeared. I had a mover. It vanished. I, I, I won't get into that story, but I did used to have a mover and it's gone. I got to get a new one. But, um, yeah, so that kind of got me in this. So at that point I was like, my head's out of it. The, you have to throw the stages away, and I didn't. I basically just resigned myself to who cares, I'm done, you know, let me just pop some through and see what's going on and, and really go back to a crawl and where you kind of want to go back to a walk. I went back to a crawl, and it's funny too, in the last stage, like the, the stage that Phil filmed – I'm looking for a problem. I can't figure out what I was doing. I'm not lifting my head looking downrange. I'm looking over at my rifle. I don't know what problem I was running into. If it was, I don't know what it was. I I was looking at my ejection port, and that was bad, man. That was not something I should be doing. But having that video really, really helps. And and that's why film Phil films himself that often. Because you see what you're doing wrong. You see all these things, and it's like, okay, why am I looking at that? Why am I keep going to my injection port, you know? Because I, I clearly, in my mind, looking at it yesterday, because he sent it to me yesterday, I'm trying to figure out what am I, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? And there really shouldn't have been a problem at that point. I had corrected almost all of them other than the bipod one and it, it, it was when I talked to them what it was is that they were expecting the Cerakote my chassis and they anodized it and the Cerakote versus the anodization because I was I measured it all and found out and I got I grabbed the hold of them as quick as I could to say hey there was an issue with your spec make sure you do really right stuff and not Arca Swiss because they went to Arca Swiss so I think that lent to a little bit and then not seracoding it, they lost that amount of thickness on there, and my the rails weren't tightening up like they should have. And when I tried everybody who had a really right stuff with a lever throw, you can move it by your hand with the lever, you know. So it was clearly off. And so the, actually, I, when I talked to JP, they're taking this chassis back and they're going to seracote it, and that will you know build it back up and fix that. But they're well aware and. It was just a like it was just a thing that they wanted it out to me quick and they didn't friggin' paint it. They anodized it and we're done with it, you know? And that's kind of how the prototypes were put out there that they didn't go through the entire process because they knew they were gonna be messing with it. So that's sorted out. Uh, I'm glad that's where the positive comes in is being able to talk directly in real time with the company 
and say, whoa, don't go any further. Make sure you guys look at this because the spec's a little bit off and the things are moving, you know, so that was good. But the chassis, I thought, worked really well. The handguard was cool. The, 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 it fit and felt great. I had a lot of comments on it, a lot of compliments on the zero compromise, um, you know, all that stuff. So it, it, I'm definitely happy with how that went, but I'm, you know, again, being a beta tester is not a good thing in the middle of a match, but at the same time, I don't mind being a beta tester if I can help make it better for the next guy, you know? So that's that's where th that was. But uh, no, the match ended up, so like I said, once that Air Dingo one messed up on me, I, I was done. My day was over. I was like, ah, you got to be kidding. So I just cruised around, socialized. Like I said, I would have still good stages, still bad stages and, and things like that. But uh, it was um, it was just one of those deals where I learned a lot, man. You, the, the mental aspect of this game is giant. If it tweaks you and you let it get in your head, it will. You know, make sure your equipment is battle-tested before going there. You know, don't—you can't take it and go because it's training. You know what I mean? If you're spending the money to go to a match and it's local or whatever, it's a good way to see what will fail because the match—you know, like I said, I saw a firing pin break. I saw, you know, all these other things. I saw stuff go down. A match will break stuff, especially Rifles Only is weird, man. Rifles Only breaks a lot of shit. Then the other thing I messed up, um, and, and it was, it was, it was, you know, not being there since 2011, it was my fault. The, the bigger rear bags definitely help. I was using the short tab rear bag. I should have used the tall tab. And I actually, I think I'm going to default to the tall tab on the tower at rifles only. When you have to shoot the 300 and 400, you're pointing down. And the first stage when I was there were the far ones. And, and Jacob had a reverse frustration ladder. He had a 10-inch target at 1,000 yards, 10-inch target at 900 yards, you know, small targets and all that. And out there at distance, it's not that big a deal because you're shooting straight. But then when you go 5, 4, and 3, which we did at Moving Chaos and those, and one of the other stages that we're at, you're pointing down, and my rear bag was too short. And... I found myself lifting off the bag and then floating and then missing by like on KYL, I kept, I kept missing the, the, the third and fourth one and kept coming back to it because I found myself, I was hovered, you know, and I needed a taller rear bag. And with the one bag rule, you're only bringing one bag up. I couldn't just say, oh, I need this different bag and you can't run down because they're shooting down the line and you'd shake the tower. So just not remembering that I need to worry about the height going and shooting down at those closer ranges, it bit me at KYL. I should have done a lot better at KYL because the rifle was shooting good, and and I didn't do that. So that was one of those deals where um, it, it was it was something that was kind of tough. But uh, yeah, rear bags, man. Look at your bags and look at the size and make sure you're understanding how the stage works. And, and like I said... Watching guys that watched everybody in front, they had it, and I don't want to say an advantage because that's not right, but they were better. They had a, it was, it, they were much more competitive when you're seeing what everybody else is doing in front of you. Okay, so that's something to consider uh, uh, with that. Uh, again, you know, 
for preparation. My dope was 100% on. The trace saw worked, man. I didn't have to play with it, didn't have to true it, didn't change a single value, and my dope was there. So I, I got no excuses when it comes to that. But what people were seeing, I had, even on the short targets, about three-tenths of wind dialed on, you needed it. And even in the, this one short stage, I got three-tenths. I'm shooting less than 400 yards, 6'5", 147, 2700, and I got three-tenths of wind dialed on because this target's small. Well, when you hit the berm behind it, the dirt shoots up based on the way the angle of the dirt and the thing. And, and people have this little micro delay in their brain. So the RO is telling people you missed high, but they didn't. They were missing left and right because the wind, I'm center, center, right edge, center, center, right edge. You know, because when I saw the gust came up, I balanced over to the right edge, and everybody that I talked to, most were shooting six millimeter of some kind. And they're saying to the, every person said to me who was asking about the winds and the different stuff, they held center. Oh, it's a six millimeter at you know thirty one hundred feet per second at four hundred yards or three hundred yards. I don't need wind. Yeah, you do. Because the target was really small. And that was my other training thing. I know I'm going to get long here. I may not add the bonus. I probably will. But the um the, the deal was the target was small enough where the win mattered. And part of my training scar that I'm kind of playing with in my brain, I've been shooting too big of targets for this for some prep. I need to go big, small, and make sure I'm on with those tiny targets. Jacob was right around a minute, minute and a half for a lot of this stuff, you know. Some of them seemed a little bit, but they, you know, the way they're shot up, the view, the whole thing, they're small. And he, he had a 10-inch plate that you had to shoot first, like almost, you could do cold bore, there was a KYL, you could shoot the KYL or skip that and shoot the 1,000. It was a 10-inch plate at 1,000, okay. That, that was not something easy for people when the wind is just enough to move you off just enough to move you off you know and everybody even like when phil came down he shot the stage before me and was coming down and i was going up and you know they're up on top of the tower so you really can't see them i said what's the deal man how's it going he goes it's not what you think and what it was is i had to hold just like I had to hold high, like about two tenths. I was about two tenths off on that 10 inch plate at a thousand. So I, I had to hold high just at the top of the right edge of the plate was where I was to hit it. And, you know, guys were adding like half mil, one mil. They were putting in some big wind, but the way the angle was, it was like edge of plate, but on it. And it's just small enough where any little wiggle, man, and you were off. But it was a good event. It was a humbling event. It was the worst event I have ever shot in the history of me shooting an event. My fault. I need to do better on the train, or not the training, but the um, competition side of things. The I actually felt I moved in and out of, and I was running the bolt good on, or, you know, fast on a lot of stages. I, I felt more comfortable. But at the same time, anytime the back of the rifle was floating and not having a bag, I didn't practice enough of not shooting with any rear support. So anytime that rear end was floating, my firing arm was floating, it bit me. 
because I didn't practice it. I always put a bag there. So when you got to think about when you only get one bag, I would I would have like a two a two bag training and a one bag training. You know what I mean? Something that you're doing both where I you know, it's like, well, I'm not going to shoot it like that. I'm going to support my firing elbow. That's the proper training thing to do. But then when somebody else's rules, and I've mentioned this, when I'm subject to the other guy's rules, I don't get to say I need to do that. And if I hadn't practiced it, it bit me. And shows this is all perishable. Couldn't shoot a mover to save my life. And usually I smoke movers. Couldn't shoot a mover to save me. It was really, really. And when I, the third mover stage that I did, it was like first round hit, second round hit, and I did better, but then I fell apart with a wind change, you know? And so I, I did like, I got up like five in a row and then fell off. And I miscounted my mag. Oh, I saw Phil, and I don't know if it was me or them, but Phil was in front and he shot that mover stage because it was the one after when we did the, those culverts. He shot 13 and I shot 13. So for some reason, both of us were off on our round count. So I don't know how to even, you know, kind of go that, but I have to, I thought I double checked. I had 15 rounds with me, but it appears I only had 13. And that was kind of weird. But anyway, so it's all this mental, the mental aspect of this is gigantic. Not only the mental prep in the moment, and what you do to recover when you have a bad stage. I did every one of those things wrong beyond the fact that I was just like, I just want to have fun. I don't care. Like I said, you could see me shooting the last stage. I might post that video up because it's funny. I'm talking every round to the RO and yelling at him. You know what I mean? Because I, I was having fun. And it, and, and it really did help clear my head. And it was great to see everybody. Thank you for all of that stuff. Um, hang on, I'm going to run that Jacob uh, bonus footage for you, the, the lost episode stuff. So definitely, um, you know, stick around and, and we'll talk more about this. I'm, I'm going to follow back up. I actually got really long-winded in this one and I'm, I'm coming up on my hour. And, and, but I'm going to give you that extra 13 minutes that are there. All righty. But no, man, thank you to everybody down at Rifles Only. It was a great time. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, all the people who talked to me and enjoyed the everyday sniper podcast thanks to the guys we got to laugh with and talk about stuff with and learning experience it was huge man it, it, they really are a good training um a, a way of conducting training for a little less money by going to the comps and seeing with it but uh you know don't don't be frank man it was it was it was a shit show <laughs> all righty i'm gonna put in this bonus footage for you guys uh thanks a lot for listening cheers Hey, you got Frank from the Everyday Sniper, and I'm down at Rifles Only, uh, getting ready to shoot the brawl, as I was talking about uh, the last week. I'm sitting with Jacob Bynum. Uh, this is one of the most asked for podcasts that uh, people, or interviews, I guess I should say, that people have been asking. So uh, we have the opportunity before this starts to sit down with Jacob and just go over sort of the history of Precision Rifle. We'll go over some of the fundamental stuff that we used to do down here with the training and everything, and uh, we'll just... Take the conversation where it goes and see what happens. So, Jacob, thanks for being on the Everyday Sniper Podcast. Hey, thanks for driving all the way down here from Colorado. It's a long trip. Yeah, better weather, though. Yeah, better weather. <laughs> better minus, weather. <laughs> minus five when I left at 60 here. Yeah, whenever you text, you say, I'll bring some snow. I was like, nah, keep it. <laughs> keep it. I don't want it. <laughs> no snow. The polar vortex. So, uh, a lot of things. Uh, I look at my history for precision rifle. Uh, you know, you go back to the Marine Corps. 
But I think rifles only shaped me more so because it, it, it was that incestuous training. It was the seven, you know, coming out of the 70s and 80s. They, 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 it was doctrine from Vietnam. Sure. And that doctrine was from World War II. Sure. And then coming to Texas and coming down here, I thought you guys fundamentally shot different. Mm-hmm. Okay. As yeah. far as what I learned in the military. And you, I mean, it, you kind of started this and people don't give you enough credit for that because you were doing this in the 90s down Correct. here and you developed yep. more so of, I, I, I don't want to say you developed it, but you promoted straight back behind the rifle, the, the efficiency of shooting, you know, all the, the, like, you know, all the stuff people are doing today and talk about as if it was happening every day yeah. was really born in terms of structure here. I agree. I agree. Yeah, we were doing, you know, we were doing those matches in, in the mid-90s, and we were getting, you know, the, the first one was kind of small. We are doing it down the Rio Grande Valley, but, you know, it got to the point where we were getting, you know, 80, 90, 100, 120 people there. Yep. And then, uh, you know, the, the thing about it is, is what we always, we always really stress the fundamentals very, very hard, just like you were speaking about. But it was fundamentals under different conditions, you know, and it was like most of the time what you were talking about, the training that was going on, wasn't bad training. Fundamentals haven't changed in, in no. 100 years. But the thing about it was, is it was like, uh, it was always prone. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. was always that. And we were the first ones that were, you know, actually adding the run and gun to it, adding the, the heart rate to it, adding shooting off of different, what people now call them props or whatever. You know, yeah, it doesn't obstacles, matter. We, yeah, bar- obstacles, right. barricades, whatever. But, um, you know, it was just kind of the more complex it got, the more simplistic it got. You know, it was like, uh, we're still just applying the fundamentals. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, to the point where if you come down here, you got the grid on the floor that mm-hmm. we have to, to make sure you can look at somebody to be straight and square, eliminate angles mm-hmm. and do all that. So where did that sort of going in, in, in at the time, everybody was off to the side. They were I'll tell that. you where it came from. I, it was like the, there's an old man, Jacob Godfordson. He was a, he was a medic, Green Beret medic in Vietnam. And mm-hmm. so... When I was shooting Blue Steel, Blue Steel, Blue Steel. He's the man. He's an author now. Go yeah. look at his books. I do. Yeah. I, I have yeah. one. At any rate, you know, he. I called him up. I said, "Hey, I want to go and you know talk about some reloading and some shooting with you and stuff like that." And so we go out to his range, and he's a bench rester at this point. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it was like, um, you know, I talked to this guy, and it was like, man, man, bench rest is. I'm sure it's very exciting for someone sitting on the bench, but if you're just there watching it, it's like watching the paint dry. Right. You know what I mean? It's just kind of boring. But, you know, he got into it, you know, and I shot with him a little bit. It wasn't really for me or anything else. But one of the things that he was doing is he was starting to, he was starting to develop some, some thousand-yard cartridges, you know, or, you know, shoot them that other people had developed. But he had a, a gun called a 308 Bear, and basically it was a super, super long-action, thick, you know, 30 cal. Right. And um, he used it on the bench, you know. So you're talking about a 40-pound rifle. And, and uh so we got it up on the tower one day, you know, with the, you know, that $4,500 front rest, you know, everybody complains that their bipods cost, you know, $300 now. Yeah. Well, go, go to talk to the bench rest guys, yeah. you know, they spend 2000, 3000 on their front rest, um, which is nothing for them. But one of the things that we did you know, is using a jewel two ounce trigger is we set it up at a thousand yards and we manipulated the trigger with a pencil. And what we saw was the rifle came straight back. You know, it's made to slide in the bags. Right. And I said, well, let's, let's do this with a 308. You know what I mean? Because this is a big heavy gun. Let's do it with a, a, a field gun. rifle, a littler or a lighter weight gun. Same thing happened. And so the, I guess, and this is in the very, very beginning of, of developing, you know, the training curriculum at Rifles Only. And I thought, well, and I was the same way. I would shoot and the gun would bounce off to the left. But why? Why would it do that? Because if it's going to do that, 
then it's something that I'm doing. You know, it's it, an influence it's, through, through you. It's, well, yeah, the, the person is doing it because when the gun comes up, <clears throat> yeah, so <clears throat> the thing about it is whenever you look at the, you look at the rifle, you know, it, once you hit the trigger, well, the bullet goes one way and recoil goes the other. Right. So if that gun's bouncing right or left, it's because of something we're doing. All right, so what are the possible causes of this, okay? And first is we need to give the rifle something solid to recoil against. And again, back in the day, we're all shooting 308s. We're not shooting these, you know, little, little, little cartridges. Yeah. right. So, you know, we had to deal with some recoil, you know, and a few of us had suppressors. Some of us using muzzle brakes, but some of us weren't. No. You know, we were just using straight 308s. But I found that it didn't really matter the caliber. You know, like my dad, he's, he likes to hunt and everything else. So guess who gets to sight in his 416 Weatherby Magnum? Right. I do, you know, and I you know, get beat to heck on it. But, you know, whenever he goes to Africa and shoots an animal, he says it doesn't recoil at all. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, <laughs> but at any rate, <clears throat> so we started getting straight behind the gun. And then you would still get it. You know, you would still start to see, you know, some of these bouncy things. Well, where else are we causing differential pressure? Well, we're causing it in the trigger. And so it's like uh, come up with the 90 degree trigger finger, mm -hmm. you know, that that started here, um, you know, putting it right in the middle of the pad and, and just sitting and watching yourself dry fire, making sure you're coming straight back on the trigger. So that solved another one, you right. know. And then of late, I'm saying like in the last four years, you're going to find this interesting. Sometimes I'd be sitting there watching a person, they're straight behind the gun, they're coming straight back on the trigger and they're still getting bounced. Mm -hmm. right? Where is the differential pressure coming from? Well, there's only one last place it can come from and that can be where you're holding the rifle into your shoulder pocket. So we're all taught, hold the rifle into your shoulder pocket, hold it straight back at six o'clock. Well, some people's perception of six o'clock is actually five o'clock. Yep. And so the way I corrected that was where you're holding back on putting that pressure straight to six, put it at seven, hold it back to seven. So if you hold it back to seven and the bounce stops, then that's your new six. That's your new normal. Right. You know, what their brain was perceiving as coming, holding it straight back, they were actually adding a little more differential pressure. Well, we pretty much solved it a problem. And point. everybody's different when they shoot. Their body this type is different. The whole yep. thing. I mean, even here, nobody realized floating the thumb was here. I was here the day it happened. Mm -hmm. You were demonstrating something completely unrelated. You, you, you had your left hand out. You were floating the thumb to show it was a ranger class, actually. Mm -hmm. And it, it was, um, you said, look, you don't need your thumb. You can right. cut it off. Yeah. And you flipped your thumb over to the other side of the stock. And it, you know, somebody took off. We know who took off with that. But I yeah. mean, the thing is. Now it, we have little rests. For right, now thumb. you have rests. Now we have rests for rest our thumbs. Rests for all that. But <laughs> yeah. all you were doing were, was demonstrating the angles and the straight back. Yeah. And to show that, that if you come back and if you do the 90 degree trigger, the rest will take care of itself that sure. way. But I, I mean, it and one was... of the more crude things that I say in my military classes, whenever I'm explaining this is, uh, you got to come straight back on the trigger. And if you have to take your left thumb and stick it up your ass, you're going to end up with a stinky thumb. Yeah. Because the main thing is coming straight back, on, back that on that trigger. Yeah. Right. No matter what you got to do, it supports the fundamental of you know, proper trigger control. Mm -hmm. you know? So again, and you know, you and I are sitting in here in the classroom and it's kind of like, um, I always say, you know, whenever I'm explaining this on Monday morning to a new class, whether it's civilian, military, or federal law enforcement or whatever, I say, Bigfoot comes through that door right there, I'm going to pull out my pistol, and I'll be slapping the piss out of the trigger. Yeah. But with the way I hold my gun, at least I'm slapping it straight to the rear. Right. You know what I mean? And so. And, and that's where that muscle memory comes in that some people, I, I talk about it's on a subconscious level. Mm -hmm. We're doing those repetitions so much that it becomes subconscious. Right. And that's where, like, which your, you know, your seven is your new six. Right. Because that's a subconscious thing for it people. Is. It is. And, it is. And what you're doing is you're rewriting, and you always talk about that to create positive neural pathways correct 
And you're rewriting that pathway to say, while you think that's six, yeah. this is really your this new. This is really six, and, yeah. And so it's, it's so brain heavy. Oh, I yeah. mean, before we started the cast, we were just talking about, you know, software don't shoot itself. No. Well, none of this stuff does it. You no. know, we can have the best data <clears throat> on the planet. You it's, can't buy skill. No, you can't. No. And, and so, you know, where have you seen people, and I know a lot of it's not positive, but where have you seen people taking this, or do you think it's the 80, 40, 20, where they've gotten the 80% from you or I or whoever else is out there, mm -hmm. that you know they can retain that 40%, but they only can tell everybody you know, who they're talking to the 20%. Yeah. And do you see that as creating any, you know, I, I think there's some negatives, but do you see any positives that have come out of that? Well, I don't know. You know, the thing about it is, is there's, a, there's been a big, a big push lately. Okay, well, you know, fundamentals, you know, if I have a gun that's, you know, a six millimeter Creedmoor, I think now they even have a 22 Creedmoor, you know, yes, which, they do. Which, which I'm dying to see. Yeah, it's, um, it's there. I'm there's, all about that. There's you know 22 I mean? everything now. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm all about that. You know, go ahead and get that because you're, you know, push if I, whatever bullet I've, you know, I know that I can hit with a 223, you know what I mean? And if I got a little bit more powder on it and the same recoil, you know, why not? Right. Um, I think those are good things as far as coming out on there. And then again, you hear the thing, well, that, that, that bullet really doesn't have a whole lot left whenever it gets to the target. And I say, okay, well, go stand out there and we'll see how much it has left. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which is beside the point of what you're saying. But I think that people are under the impression and now with so many different products out there, there, there is, there are, and I, I mean, I see them down here in this region, you know, on occasion and people that come from all over the world to train here. There is a misconception that you actually can buy skill. Yes. You know what I mean? They do try. Yeah. They try to buy skill. And, you know, I don't care if, if I'm, you know, and believe me, I've got, you know, three, six, five barrels for my... I was going to say, there's not a piece of kit you and I haven't touched yeah, down here I've, in some way. Exactly. And I've got, I just got in three new six millimeter Creedmoor barrels for my AW. Uh, and if, if anybody out there needs a barrel change, just let me know. I'm, I'm kind of good and quick at it. <laughs> yeah, you <get> the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got my hammer and my crescent wrench. Anyway, beside the point. But the thing about it is, is those guns are, are very forgiving. You right. know, they, they blast through the wind better. And you compare, like I was talking about it the other day, you compare the 308, you know, drop to one of those drops, it's night and day. You know, it's great. But if you're still not driving the rifle, you know, you're, you're going to end up with a problem. And the way I explain it is this. If I'm out there and I've got a target that's an extended distance, you know, and my best guess on the wind, which you and I have had the conversation many times, the wind's a great equalizer. You know, it's always going to be a guess. You right. know, the only way you can measure it is right there. Now, the more you do it, the more educated your guess becomes, you know, like with anything else. But if my best guess is 1.5 mils, hell, even, I, even if I got it off a of ballistics program, well, the wind doesn't really listen to the ballistics program. It, it doesn't do what the ballistics <laughs> yeah. program tells it to do. It's the other way around. So I shoot. And I see that I didn't hit, but I hit at two mils. All right, I don't have to think. I don't have to do anything. I hold two mils and pull the trigger. But if I'm slapping the trigger, then what I'm doing is I have a fundamental problem, not an environmental issue right. downrange. You know, and right. I need to make sure I'm solving for the environmental issue, which goes back to your point. Drive the gun the same every time. That way, whenever you do make a correction, your, your correction actually has meaning. You know? it's, it's, and you talk about that. That was hugely illuminating. We were doing a, a, a .gov class out here. We had 20 students, all with the same gun, mm -hmm. basically same ammo. We're on the tower. We're shooting 1,000 yards. And we know, you know it, it's, it's about 3 mils of wind at 1,000 yards for the 308s. On a normal day. On here. a normal day, yeah. right. And we had 
you know, three and a half, two and a half. We had all these varying numbers, but we had the one guy with 1.5. Mm-hmm. He was the only lefty on the line. Exactly. exactly. And, and, and people don't get that, that you have a swing of 1.5 mil and 3.5 mil to hit the same target on the same line at the 